0: Two. Last week, last week, we started talking about the intellectual gifts of the apostle Paul. You remember we went through this? We said that, that, Paul was born in Tarsus, a cosmopolitan city with lots of travel and in-and-out trade. And so Paul became very familiar with, with Greek culture, with Roman culture. We said that Paul knows Aristotle and will interact with Plato. And historians say that Paul is a highly gifted philosopher himself. Remember we said that Paul, throughout the scriptures, he argues with great weighty lines of logic, pound for pound, uh, with every... Um, Rabbinic tradition. He's, he's fluent. He understands. He, he argues the faith. Remember we said that the apostle Paul was trained by Gamaliel, who was the leading rabbi of the day, the head of Sanhedrin. That, uh, Gamaliel is still honored in rabbinic tradition. That Paul understood historic Judaism. He was fluent in Hebrew. He had great passions of, uh, portions of the Tanakh memorized. We were told in Galatians chapter 1 that Paul excelled beyond all of his peers in the Jewish faith, headed for great leadership. He was a Roman citizen. Remember we said this? A Roman citizen, very aware of the political landscape. And his contemporaries call him brilliant. Remember Peter said, Paul makes great arguments that are really hard to understand, Peter the fisherman. Remember that Festus in Acts 24 says, Paul, your great learning it's making you mad. In other words, Paul, you're so smart that you don't even know what you're talking about anymore. Paul responds with, no, everything I just said was logical and reasonable. So we, we've thought about Paul in that light as the greatest thinker of his day. Again, historians would say that Paul is the greatest thinker of the day. And We've thought about Paul addressing the Colossian heresy um, as this great thinker. We said last week that Paul said... Um, All I want to talk to you about is Jesus. I could talk to you about philosophy. I could talk to you about history. I could talk to you about Roman and Greek culture. I could talk to you about linguistics. I could talk to you about politics. There's only one thing I will talk to you about, and it's the person, Jesus Christ. You Remember, that was our our kind of point last week. This week, I, I want to examine another facet of Paul's life as we try to understand where Paul's coming from as he addresses this Colossian heresy. I want to remind you of Galatians chapter 2 quickly. Remembering again, keep in light, Paul, the greatest thinker of his day. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. Let me read you this, and we're going to paint a picture here. When Cephas, Cephas is just a Greek name for Peter. So when when Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul writing to the Galatians, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Here, Paul is in Antioch. At this point in church history, Antioch was becoming the Christian hub. And so at this point in church history, Antioch was sending out missionaries. Antioch was larger than the Jerusalem church. Historians say that the Jerusalem church was, imagine this, largely Jewish. They were growing older. And the Antioch church, where all the momentum was flooding, was a young, largely Gentile church. Now remember, of course, that it's at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to bring the gospel to the nation. So Antioch, we would call Paul's sending church. So Paul's in Antioch with the Gentiles. He's having dinner. Peter's been there for days. And Peter also is having dinner with the Gentiles. In the gospel, in Christ, we are one new man. Jew and Gentile alike come to the table of the Lord for fellowship. There are no hierarchies in Christianity. All bow at the foot of the cross. And so because of Jesus' blood, Jew and Gentile at Antioch are eating together. But, of course, there are some in Jerusalem who Scripture calls the circumcision party. We learn from Galatians that the circumcision party says, you cannot be a Christian unless you receive circumcision and follow the laws of Moses. So, in other words, the Gentiles are second class unless they first receive Judaism. Now, Peter doesn't believe that. None of the apostles believe that. They all thought that every man is saved by faith and faith alone, not by works of the law. So Peter is hanging out with the Gentiles, having a nice snickety-snack. That's what we call it in our house, a little snickety-snack. They're having a little fellowship. Until the circumcision party comes to Antioch, to the Gentile church. And then Peter gets nervous. Now, we like to talk about Peter denying Christ three times, and he did. But after his restoration at the end of, of John's Gospel, when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And after Acts chapter 2, we see Peter t- preaching with great boldness and fiery passion. And we say, after the Spirit, Peter was bold. But now in this moment, we see Peter retreating to his weak old self. And when the Judaizers come and they bring pressure, Peter begins to draw back. He's been eating with the Gentiles all week, but now he's going to go sit by the Jews. And then Barnabas. Now Barnabas is Paul's missionary companion, his very best friend in the world. Even Barnabas draws back and sits with the Jews. And they began to treat the Gentiles like they're less than Christians. Now we find an aspect of Paul's heart that I want to open up for you today. Paul in this moment. The scripture will call at times in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, I understand that many say I'm timid and weak. That my presence is not strong and bold. But Paul says, I choose to come to you with compassion and kindness. So Paul's natural, tim- his natural uh, personality, his character fe- can feel timid. He's, he's gracious and he leads with kindness. Always leads with kindness. But he'll say to the Corinthians, Would you rather me come with kindness or with a rod? In other words, my tendency is kindness, but by God I have a rod if you'd like it. Um, here we find the rod of Paul. Now Peter is the chief apostle. Peter is, in some sense, the leading apostle, but Paul doesn't care who you are and and so not only is is, is Pete, Paul going to call Peter out in front of the Judaizers, he says, peter, you're afraid of the Judaizers, I rebuke you in front of them." And I'll rebuke Barnabas in front of them. Paul is saying in this moment, I am not intimidated by these kind of religious um, kind of hecklers of false gospels. I will not be peer pressured out of the true gospel. I'll oppose Peter in front of everybody. Paul the newcomer. Who is he to stand up and call Peter out? Paul does not care. Here we find Paul the defender, Paul the shepherd. Again in second Corinthians ten they say Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no accounts. But in first Corinthians chapter four, verse twenty one, Paul says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? His posture was grace and gentleness, but by God he has a rod, and Paul requires every shepherd, every elder of the church to possess a rod. And Paul will require of every Christian church the backbone to stand up and oppose false teaching. Now now watch um, Titus one ten. Now we read some of this last week. Uh, Titus has been sent to the Cretans, that church there, and he's supposed to establish elders. And so Paul's writing what's one, called one of the pastoral epistles to Titus. And he says in Titus one ten, For there are many who are insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers especially those, imagine this, especially those of the circumcision party. So here we see that Paul had a problem with these people for a lot of his ministry. Especially those of the circumcision party. What does he say? They must be silenced. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Then he says, remember we read this last week, one of the Christians, a prophet of their own, said Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Paul required of young Titus, a Christian elder and leader, he said, you must silence the circumcision party. Then he says, um, you must rebuke them sharply. So in Paul's loving kind, gracious temperament, there are moments in his life where he bears down the full weight of all of his intellect and all of his conviction to rebuke heretics, to rebuke false teachers. But as we turn to Colossians chapter 2, Paul the defender is writing to a church who is dealing with what is called historically the Colossian heresy. They are going after false teachings. But Paul finds himself in quite a predicament. He is not able to run to Colossae and to defend the Colossians. Why? Because he's sitting in a Roman prison. So here, there's a moment in the life of the Colossian church when the Colossians will have to defend the Colossians. They cannot hide behind the intellectual strength and wit and and weightiness of Paul. They will not be defended by the great apostle who can run to their rescue and embarrass all of these false teachers with their this this great pound-for-pound logic. They can't hide behind Paul. Every parent knows this moment when your children have to stand on their own two feet. You can't fight every battle for them. At this moment in the life of the Colossian church, Paul, the apostle, the defender, he sits in a Roman prison, and he writes to them, there are some perverting your Christian community. Now is the time to silence them. Now is the time to stand on your own two feet. Now, I want to suggest to you today that every church, even in our day, will have this moment when the church has to rise up and proclaim, we believe orthodox, sound, Historic Christianity. We believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We believe Jesus lived a sinless life. We believe Jesus was fully God and fully man. We believe Jesus died a substitutionary death. We believe He rose from the dead on the third day. We believe He ascended to the right hand of God. And by God, we believe He will return again and make all things right. But if the church is too stinking weak and backboneless... She will allow heresy to sleep in, sneak in, begin to water down everything that the Lord's done, and a church will slowly begin to fall asleep. So this is the moment. Paul is saying to the Colossians here, you've gotta, you've gotta stand on your own two feet. It's time for you to stand up. It's actually, it's really interesting to think about because as we look at other epistles, right? We look at Timothy, we look at Titus. In many cases, Paul was writing to specific elders of the church. But here, Paul's not writing to a specific elder in the Caution church. He's writing to the whole church. He's writing to the entire congregation. He asked that the letter be read to the entire congregation. He is saying there have got to be, uh, definitely the elders have to lead the way, but in the congregation there have got to be men, there have got to be women with backbones who will hold fast to the true gospel. And you say, oh, Caleb, we don't have that going on today. I promise you we do. I promise you the sound gospel is being attacked on multiple fronts. We'll get into that a bit in a minute. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul says, I want you to know that I am struggling on your behalf. That you may be, these are the two points we're going to ride home today. That you may be knit together in love. And that you may have full assurance that Christ is the mystery of God revealed to the earth, and that all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the person of Jesus. First, let's think about what Paul means when he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I've had on your behalf. Some translations are going to translate that word struggle as how much I've contended for you. I want you to know that I have contended for you. Now, what could that mean? Paul's sitting in prison again. It it obviously means, it it can't mean that he's argued with the circumcision party or that he's going to come and fight with hand-to-hand combat. It obviously means, Paul is saying, that I have wrestled, I have groaned in prayer on your behalf. I want you to know that for great days and nights, I have put my face on the floor of this prison cell and I have cried out to God for you. I want you to know that I have contended in the heavenlies on your behalf. I can't run to you, I can't turn over the tables in the temple, but I have pounded on the gates of heaven, petitioning God on your behalf. Remember again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul says, apart from other things, apart from the stonings and the beatings and the whippings that I've experienced, I experience daily pressure. On me for, from anxiety for the churches. In other words, I sit in this present cell and I have a, a sense of godly anxiety, godly stress, burden. Ministers, apostles, they are under a certain burden. There's a godly burden that I bear day in and day out as I'm concerned for your welfare. And then we ask Paul, well, what do you do with the burden? And we find Paul say, I contend. I wrestle in the heavenlies. Think of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. Paul says, Finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, contend against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in heavenly places. It seems clear that in Paul's mind, what the Colossians are experiencing is a demonic assault. They are not wrestling with flesh and blood. They are wrestling with the strategies of hell to assault the pure and true gospel movement that they've experienced. I think we could build this argument from the life of Paul that every time a church has a true expression of the gospel and people began to be filled with the Spirit, liberated from sin, discipled to lay their lives down for the gospel of Christ, it's only a matter of time before those people will be challenged by a satanic assault. Now, if I could get off my notes here and just chat for a second. The demonic assault that is challenging the church at Colossae is not some kind of depression or night terrors. The pastors aren't tempted with sexual sin. The church doesn't fall into financial selfishness. They're not, they're not spending their money in a way that's ungodly, so the church begins to cave. What's challenging the Colossian church is false teaching. At times hell presents teachers. We think we think of temptation to sin. But at times hell presents orators and people who seem gifted intellectually and people who are convincing and they bring a doctrine now, I could build the case. I don't have the time to build the case for you. That scripturally speaking, when we think of Antichrist, we think of Antichrist that it culminates in a single person in the end times. But scripturally speaking, John talks about the spirit of Antichrist already being in the world. There is a demonic attempt to undercut, to present doctrines and teachings that are anti-Jesus. And the, look, it's trying to get me right now. You see that little Beelzebub? Y'all got to quit messing with me today. Y'all trying to make me laugh today. I'm trying to be mad and pessimistic and y'all trying to make me laugh. Um, False teaching. You don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but a demonic strategy that comes through teaching. Now, the Colossian heresy, let's go over it again. The Colossian heresy seems to be some form of early Gnosticism. The word Gnostic, it basically means knowledge. Gnostics taught that they had secret knowledge. The word Gnosis, right? Like a diagnosis, right? Like you, 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 We have knowledge of what's happening here. The Gnostics taught that they had secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge was primarily, though they wouldn't have taught it as out front. You understand that every cult, every cult, the Mormonisms, the, uh, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you go down the list, they, they, they want to seem palatable on the outside. It's not until you dig deeper that you begin to realize that what's being presented actually undercuts the person of Jesus. It's Antichrist. And so in the same sense, the Gnostics, they, they feel palatable. They seem, oh, OK, on the outside. But the plain teaching is that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that Jesus was some kind of, of spirit, man, kind of like a ghost, because everything of matter has to be evil. and so Jesus didn't wear matter, he was some kind of spirit. The problem with that is, we believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He wore flesh for me. When they put nails in His hands, there was hunks of flesh that were pierced on my behalf. His body was broken for my salvation. His blood was spilled for my redemption. And so when you present a Christ who is not flesh, who did not come in the flesh, then I have no blood to wash me from my sins. And we have to respond to this kind of ideology with a firm conviction that no, Jesus was God of God and was fully man. He was not half and half. He wasn't Arnold Palmer. He was fully God and fully man. The entire gospel falls apart when you go down this lane of trying to find the secret spiritual knowledge. Now, I am going to step on some toes for a minute, but forgive me. I've talked to you. Now, let me just talk. I've talked to you about the dangers of what I, what we would call wokeism, the dangers of the woke church. There are dangers of CRT. We've talked about that. I don't believe that critical race theory has any place in the church. I've said that now for at least a year and a half. Okay, so let me talk to you now about the dangers of the conspiracy theory, particularly of QAnon that's beginning to... Grab evangelicals. The entire premise of QAnon, which has been wrong in many cases, is that there are some who are being awakened to new knowledge. Now, I'm not saying that, that everything has been wrong, but a lot of it has been wrong. And so, it's, it's, you're bought in by this political in, enticing. You, you come in thinking we're gonna find, uh, we're gonna find political truth that no one else knows about, as if no one else has read the post. We're gonna find this secret knowledge concerning politics. And then what's happening, I promise you this, and many don't see it yet, what's happening already in that movement is they're beginning to talk about things like Christ consciousness. They're beginning to talk, and what that means is that Christ... Sometimes what it means is that Christ wasn't fully God and fully man, but Christ was a man who came to a consciousness of God, and he realized that we all are kind of gods. And if we come to the consciousness, then we can we can kind of ascend to a new height of thinking. And that's actually a New Age concept that's been around forever. And I want to hear you to hear me say from the pulpit that is demonic. Okay, it's demonic. And so what started with, we have secret knowledge about politics, is slowly sliding into, because at first we were just going to, we are going to reveal the hidden demonic stuff that happens in government. And by God, I believe there's demonic stuff that happens in government. But we're going to reveal that, and now it's turning into, we're going to reveal that the church has always been wrong. And that the, the, the church has hidden from us the real truths and what's happening is they're starting to pull up Gnostic Gospels literally starting to yak about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas not everyone in this movement but this is the direction the movement's going and I'm saying to you that the true church has always said Christ came in the flesh he resurrected from the dead he was fully God and fully man and do not buy don't be enticed into this thing that says the church historically has always deceived people no, I've, I have read Augustine And I have, and I have read Jerome, and I have read Ignatius, and I have read Thomas Aquinas, and the Christ I believe in is the Christ that Paul the Apostle preached. And Paul spent his life, he spent his life arguing here, in this text arguing with Gnostics who said, no, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He was some kind of spirit. And if you would deny yourself with fasting, and if you would refuse any sexual activity for the rest of your life, then you could ascend, you could excel into a higher spirituality. And Paul said, no! No! I'm I'm telling you, there is a movement going in that direction. Now, you could say, Caleb's woke. A year and a half... I've been arguing with you about the dangers of, again, what the extreme left is trying to do infiltrating the church. Now I'm warning you plainly that there is a movement, I'm not saying all, but there is a movement of some who are trying to infiltrate the church with conspiracy theory and some of, again, I'm not saying all of it's wrong, but a lot of it is wrong and then eventually the conspiracy theory goes to the church is wrong about everything. They're lying and they're hiding things. And I'm telling you, the church has never hid the Gnostic Gospels. They threw them away because they're garbage. Okay, the, Again, the gospel of Judas. Judas killed himself. We know that historically dead people don't write books. And I'm saying to you, look, like, look, I understand I'm going to get put on the chopping block for saying this, but I am saying to you, I am not going after the wokeism, nor am I going after this, this conspiracy theory that wants to undercut everything. I'm going after the gospel that St. Augustine believed. I'm going after the gospel of Ignatius. I'm going after the gospel of the Apostle Paul. I'm going after the gospel of Peter and James and John. The gospel that men lost their heads for. Nothing, politics didn't give me life. The left side don't bring me life. The crucified man, Jesus Christ on the cross, bought me and redeemed me and set me apart. And so if you are unwilling to say that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, this is not the church for you if you are unwilling to say that the blood of Jesus washes sinners and makes them whole, I am not the pastor for you. I'm not going after wokeism, but I will not be enticed to go after a a mindset that says that the entire existence of the church has just been hiding and covering things up. No, the church is filled with people who laid down, their lost their heads... They were burned at stakes. Think of Polycarp, 80-something-year-old man being burned alive on a stake and saying, Jesus has been good to me for 80-some years. I can't deny him now. He was not a man that was trying to hide from you the true truth so that you could ascend to some new... No, that wasn't what was happening. The man said, I will die for Jesus because he's been so good to me. And I'm telling you, church, that the hour is now that you're going to have to be willing to say that. Now, what are we talking about? <laughs> Paul says, I've struggled for you in prayer. I've wrestled for you in prayer. I've, I've, I've for days and hours, I've shed tears. I've cried out to God for you in prayer because now you're going to have to stand. Then he turns to a word of encouragement. Let no one delude you. Let no one delude you. That means, let no one lead you astray. Let no one cause you to think wrongly. Let no one present to you doctrine and teaching that actually causes you to turn from the true gospel. Let no one delude you with plausible arguments. It's the way our translation translated that word. Plausible arguments. In other words, don't let people come in with oratory skills who know when to raise their voice and when to lower their voice. Don't let them come in with big words and philosophical philosophical ideas Don't let them come in and and twist and pervert. Don't let them make you, to lead you to think wrongly about Christ. Let no one lead you wrongly with persuasive speech and plausible arguments. The bait of hell to destroy the church at times comes through teaching. We would do well to pay attention to historic orthodoxy and to close the laptop at times. Sometimes we're, we're getting all of our ideas from the internet, and we should learn to read a book again. Yeah. Yeah. Read Wesley. It'll be fun. <laughs> so what the Colossians are experiencing is men inspired by demonic strategies who are bringing in false teaching. They capture the cravings of the, the, the spiritually immature who are not satisfied in Christ. Okay. Listen to this. That when a person, when a church learns to be totally satisfied in the person of, of Christ, right? Like you get up in the morning, you read your word, you sit before him, you pour out your oil on his feet and you allow him to speak to you and you, and you pour your life out just loving Jesus. I'm, I am connected to the vine. All of my nourishment comes from the person of Christ. But some people never learn to do that. They've never learned to have a daily devotion that is satisfied by Christ. And because they're not satisfied, they have itching ears. So, so when someone comes in with a new teaching, they get excited and they say, oh, maybe this is the thing that's going to satisfy me. And so they chase it and they run after it and they're, they're, they're cut off from the true faith, from the gospel because they've never actually learned that all of the mysteries of knowledge and wisdom and truth are hidden in the person of Jesus. The church, the true church, loves Jesus. Loves Jesus. And because she is so inflamed, like right, like her heart burns for Jesus, she can't allow some man or woman to come in with their eloquence and talk to them about another way of salvation or to say that jesus never came in the flesh or that he was some kind of secret spiritual being that was leading us to exalted consciousness no the church says no jesus is fully god fully man his his hands and his feet were pierced for me the hole in his side reminds me of adam's rib being taken out to to make eve the hole in his side is what birthed the church what birthed me his flesh being broken is my life And if you don't learn to be satisfied in Christ, to really dwell on Him, to meditate on who He is, to think, to use your cognitive faculties, to think about Him, if you don't learn to let your soul be fed as you read the scripture and consider what He's done for you, you will be enticed. You will develop itching ears. And Paul was saying there are some who've developed itching ears and they're going after false teachings. Now I'm talking too long. How should the Colossians stand? How should the caution stand? So he says, I struggle for you. am struggling on your behalf. I'm not with you. Remember the text said, I'm not with you in body, but I'm with you in spirit. And I am struggling. I want you to be, one, knit together in love. I want you, church, to be knit together in love. And two, I want you to be sure. I want you to have full assurance of who Christ is. How should they stand? They should stand knit together in love, unified in love, and solidified in doctrine." There are two points, two ways in which a church stands against this kind of demonic assault. One, being knit together in love. Two, being solidified in doctrine. Now, let's hash that out for a second. If you asked me, Caleb, our church is experiencing false teaching. How should we combat it? I don't know that I would say anything about being knit together in love. I would probably say something about, bring them by, let's have a good old-fashioned debate. I'd probably say something like, sure up your doctrine. I would say, yell more. That will probably work. <laughs> but it's fascinating that Paul says, one, I'm praying that you are actually knit together in love. And this is what I want to say. What I believe is, is fleshing out of the text. When a church is truly knit together in love, and they're not filled with itching ears, they, they have this, the peace of mind to slow down. Okay, a lot of times when false teaching comes in, everybody gets frenzied. You start throwing accusations across the room. You start fighting and bickering and biting and devouring. And all of a sudden, you don't even realize that you might be right doctrinally, but you're now operating in the spirit of hell by biting and devouring. So sometimes there's a temptation for those of us who are doctrinally minded to rise up with anger. But but anger is a fickle thing. And the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but you've got to be real, real mature to walk in it. And so sometimes what the enemy actually does is he brings in false teaching, some are caught away with it, and then those who are actually accurate and right in their doctrine can rise up with bitterness and anger, and now they're biting and devouring, and the church is falling apart over gossip. And so a church must be knit together in love. And when When a church, they really love each other and they really want to listen and they really want to care for each other. When false teaching comes in, they don't pick up a stone to throw. They might pick up a book and say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. They're not gossiping and and like having it out on Facebook or sending nasty emails to one another. They're saying, let's sit down, let's have lunch, and let's talk. And the church that's knit together in love is humble enough to admit when they're wrong. So Paul says, one, I want you to be knit together in love, fully aware that when a wolf attacks a flock, it intends to divide, to separate. But if you will make sure that you have real love for one another, you'll have the the, the state of mind, the peace of mind, and the patience to think rightly. We always say, like, don't, if there's, if there's hectic chaos and drama, Pastor Brad in his great brilliance says, don't respond for 24 hours, because you're going to say something you wish you didn't say. And so Paul, the first thing Paul says is, I want you to be knit together in love. I want the flock to be united in love. And when the flock is united in love, she does not allow the wolf to come in and drive some off. She huddles. And then the flock can talk with the elders, can think with the shepherds, can humbly listen and at times say, oh, I did misunderstand. Or maybe I'm not as mature in the faith as I thought. Maybe that internet post was full of balarkey.'" Is that a word? Malarkey? Malarkey? Malarkey. Maybe the man on the internet might not know what he's talking about. Maybe no one wants to publish his books because he's a moron. And when when the church will, will stay united in love... They they can think slowly enough. They have time to talk with the elders. That's what elders are for, right? To defend the church, to to to, to shepherd and to lead us in doctrine. And sometimes you get so frenzied so quick that you don't think well. The first thing is we need to be united in love and then we are to have full assurance of doctrine. So we gather in love and then the doctrine is the glue, is the cement. That's actually the, the words of a church father. That, that the doctrine cements us together. It, it, it solidifies us. So many... In our day, they, 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 bolster up love to say that the church should just be this avenue of love and we should love everybody and we should care for everybody and, and just, just love people. All Jesus was about was loving people. And we know that that's, that goes, Christianity just falls apart eventually. Because when, when you, when you bolster up this kind of, um, all inclusive love as the chief ethic of the church, what you actually do is you throw away all morality, you throw, throw away the, the, Exclusivity of the gospel, meaning that the gospel is the only way to salvation. If we're just trying to love everybody, then you eventually end up in universalism. And so Paul is not saying here, just embrace, just, just hug each other and everything's going to be okay. Right? He's not saying that. He's saying you must love each other, but you also must be solidified by your doctrine. In other words, huddle together in love and then draw a fence around you with doctrine. That's how the church keeps out wolves. She huddles together in love for each other and then draws the fence of doctrine. Now, what is the fence of doctrine that Paul just told them to draw? Full assurance that Christ is the mystery of God. Full assurance that all wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the person of Christ. The church fathers like to talk about Jesus as this kind of endless treasure chest that you just kept digging out new treasures and there's no end to all the goodness and beauty and mercy to the person of Jesus. And so, Paul is saying huddle in love, draw the fence in doctrine. So we're not saying, if the church would just learn to hug everyone, then, then everything would be better. We're saying the church needs to love each other, and the church needs to be solidified in doctrine. Specifically doctrine concerning the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the mission of Christ, the, the atonement of Christ. How does Paul say, okay, there's heresy coming, I want you to be united in love. This is the same Paul who said in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Don't, do not eat with someone who claims to be a brother but lives in sexual immorality. So Paul says to the church, you need to learn to huddle together in love. You also need to learn to not allow men and women who claim to be Christians yet live like hell to, to feast with you. Isn't that interesting? Huddled together in love. He literally said, don't sit at a dinner table with someone who lives sexually immoral. Don't sit at the dinner table with a, with a drunker. Don't sit at the dinner table with an idolater. Any of those people who claim to be Christians. He says in the text, now I'm not telling you that you can never have dinner with a drunk. I'm telling you that you should not have fellowship with a drunk who claims to be of Christ. Now how does Paul say? Huddle together in love yet don't eat with someone who claims to be a brother, yet is living in sexual morality. He is saying there must be a doctrinal fence. And anyone who tries to infiltrate the body without first coming through the gate of Jesus Christ, without first acknowledging... Christ's humanity and divinity without first acknowledging that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father lest they come by Him, without acknowledging that Jesus' blood is the substitutionary atonement for the world. If anyone wants to come to our body and teach and they will not first acknowledge the plain truths of who Jesus is, they should be kept fenced out. Does this make sense what I'm saying? how should they stand Paul saying i can't come to you but i'm praying you should stand united in love and solidified in doctrine and spend your days searching out christ Spend your life learning of Jesus. Read books that fuel your love for the person of Jesus. Spend time in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, come and ignite a fresh passion for the gospel in my soul. Spend your days searching out the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge and goodness and mercy and beauty and rightness that is the person of Jesus. That is what the church does. If you are doing anything else, you are not the church. Worship team if you come for me. Paul is saying, it's time to stand on your own two feet. I can't run to you and defend you. One. Two, you need to recognize that this spiritual, this, this teaching is actually a demonic assault on the church. You need to recognize that this is the enemy's plans to divide you to call some to rise up with anger, to call some to go after false teaching, you need to stand firm as you are knitted together in love, you are united in love, and as you are cemented, solidified in doctrine. Huddle together, flock, and build the fence of doctrine around you. You must stand in the hour of demonic assault. Now you say, Caleb, are we in the hour of demonic assault? I don't think so. But it's always better to prepare for war in times of peace. Go ahead and stand to your feet for me.